Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production from iHeartRadio. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeartRadio, and I love all things tech. And we have a special guest today, a special topic. Yes, Ayaz Akhtar, this is your life, except you're the one who's going to have to tell us about it because I don't know enough about your background. My good friend Ayaz has agreed to join the show. Welcome back to Tech Stuff. Thank you, Jonathan. It's good to be back. Uh, I always like talking to your listeners because I do find them to be some of the smartest people on the planet. This is true. They uh, consistently tell me how wrong I am, and it's only smart people who can pick up on all the mistakes I make. Uh, no, the, you're you're right. They are they are a really smart crew, and I love them very much. And uh, Ayaz and I have known each other for around a decade now, I think. It's been about 10 years since we first met. Probably a little more than that, actually. It's something like that. Time has no meaning anymore, so it's probably a decade or 12 <laughs> decades. It's hard to tell. That's true. 20, 2020 lasted <laughs> about 17 years, I think. But uh, we first met, I think, back at a CES. You were, I believe, working with Tech TV at the time? Is I was working correct? with Tech V. Tech V, that's it. That's what I meant. Yeah, tech TV is something I've never joined. I, I think I joined the spiritual successor to it at one point. Yes. Some people call yes. it. Uh, but Tech V with Randall Bennett, who used to work at Engadget, worked at CNET, started his own uh, video network. And I'm, I jumped on board and uh, we were we had a little space, I think, and it was in CES in the North Hall, I want to say. Mm-hmm. And then this guy, Jonathan Strickland, shows up and we, we hit it off and uh, he couldn't get rid of me since. Yeah, uh, of course, listeners, you probably know Ayaz best from the hit podcast, Podcast Without Pretense, uh, a show that he and I and Eric Sandine sporadically recorded for some time. We threatened to bring it back, but that kind of, I mean, let's be honest, pandemic really <laughs> did a number on everything. But um, yeah, there's there's still the threat that that show could come back. Uh, if you're a fan of family-friendly entertainment, do not listen to Podcast Without Pretense. I totally agree. It is not for uh, the faint of heart. It's not for those who love certain media conglomerates. It's not for people <laughs> who like uh, swear words. If you don't like swear words, I would uh, avoid that show unless uh, you want to just count how often we swear on the program. Yes, that show itself can live on its own. I, I will not touch upon it again. But uh, I, has, I wanted to talk to you because you have had a long career in – the sort of area that I work in too, in tech communication, although yours has had uh, very different styles than my own. So I wanted to start off by talking about how did you get into the field of working in like tech video production and tech podcasting and that sort of stuff? How did that all get started? Well, the story of that is a long and uninteresting one. So you can jump ahead at any time, you guys, if you're listening to this. But it turned out that I loved technology since I was a little kid. And uh, my dad was a gadget guy. And my mom would yell at him, like, hey, don't spend that. Don't buy those gadgets because you got to send your kids to college. And so I used to just be obsessed with gadgets growing up. And then I was in law school at the time. And I just was writing a lot of blogs. I was doing a lot of writing in general. And I got a job writing at the Apple blog, which I don't think is with us anymore. It was part of GigaOM. And I started writing blogs about Apple stuff. And then I started writing my own blogs on tech things that were beyond Apple. And there was one point where I reached uh, studying for the bar exam for New York State. And I was studying about 11 to 12 hours a day, something crazy. 
basically, if I was awake, I was studying for this exam because it was a two-day exam at the time. New York is the second hardest uh, state to pass, not like Massachusetts or, or anything else. <laughs> New York has changed. I believe it's now three days. And so I was studying like crazy, and I needed a creative outlet. And so while I was studying, I took these breaks, and I would do an audio podcast with my best friend, Rob, called Killing Time, which is on and off still for like now 10 to 15 years. I've been doing this ridiculous show. It's just an entertainment show, just talking about stuff that wasn't uh, wasn't being covered. Because back then, this is the start of podcasts. I saw Leo Laporte had moved to his own thing on Twit. I saw uh, this show called Hack 5. I was watching this guy named Darren Kitchen. I'm like, you know, th- these guys are doing podcasts. I think I could do that. And so I started recording audio stuff on my own. I figured out how to do it with an old I believe this was an an iMac, one of the first Intel ones. And I'd call my friend up, we'd record it, and I'd put it out. And this is the very early days of podcasting. So I turned that into a job at one point because I was also still finishing law school. And I just got just past the bar and I was going to go into the field of law, which because I'm a first generation American. So my folks were like, be a lawyer, be a doctor. I didn't want to be a doctor. So I got the law degree. And I entered a field, I think it was around 2006, 2007, and the entire market for lawyers dropped. So all of these people coming out of school were competing with high-level people who were being paid a lot. We were competing for the same jobs. So this was an absolute nightmare. So I was looking for positions while I was still doing my audio podcast, and I started messing with video a little bit more. And during this time, I got a job at a place called Gadgetel, and I ended up being their editor-in-chief. And as editor-in-chief, I'm like, let's make videos, and I'm going to be in them because I'm I'm in charge. So <laughs> I started making videos with the people there, and I found other video outlets with uh, Will Harris and Justin Gaynor over at Channel Flip, which I believe got bought by Condé Nast in the long run. So I started doing videos around then, and that's where it all really started because I was going bonkers and just losing – I was just losing my patience in general because I was studying so much. I just needed a creative outlet. And that was audio and video. When you were studying law, I, I want to say that there was a point where I had you on an episode where we were talking about patent law. Am mm-hmm. I remembering that correctly? That is correct, because I did study intellectual property. It was a field of law that I am and still am interested. I was interested and I'm still interested in it. But due to the fact that so many of the cases were so like it was like splitting hairs, it was making me really, really agitated. And I thought, hey, if I was ever going to die at a job because of a heart attack, this would be the thing. So I veered away from intellectual property just because I was just getting so amped up about why does this Pac-Man game make sense? And this Pong game isn't an infringement. And I just, I got too worked up. I'm like, I can't, I can't do that. So I did do a bit of intellectual property classwork, never pr- practiced that, but I did show up on an episode with you talking about intellectual property. And I believe video games was a large chunk of that. Yeah. I should probably have you back and we can have a, a discussion about patent trolls in general. And the one in particular that was threatening the entire podcast industry for a few years. Cause that, that was, was back fun. in the, yeah, back in the days when, when tech stuff was part of discovery communications and there were just these crazy uh, lawsuits getting thrown around and we could kind of dive into how that all worked, but that'll, I'll save that for a future episode. So you, you get this editor in chief job and you start making, you start making videos. I love this too, because as someone who's become executive producer, I'm the same way where I launched a podcast because I realized I had the authority to do it. So I did it. <laughs> that's how, that's how large Nerdron Collider got started. If you guys out there have listened to any of those episodes, 
Um, it was a, a show that my friend Ariel and I were doing on our own. And then I had the chance to bring it over here and I kept on, there was, there was talk of bringing it on for like two years and it just never happened. And then I realized, wait a minute, I'm an executive producer. I can make this happen myself. So I, I identify strongly. There's a couple of different parallels in our career paths. So uh, what happens next? Where do you go from there after you've got this editor in chief gig? So I do that for a couple of years. No, so that's not, that's completely wrong. That's wrong entirely. I did that for a couple of months. That's right. And mm-hmm. then Randall Bennett offered me this job because he was having me on as a guest a lot. He saw my videos on Gadgetel and he was like, hey, I think I want to interview you for this, this thing I'm doing. I said, okay. And he did a startup called TechV, TechVI. And I eventually was offered a position as managing editor of the startup. Now it would be a step down, but it was, it was purely video. And I thought, well, screw it. Let's do it. Let's go ahead and see if I could manage to do this. Now, at the time, I don't have – I have a son now, but I didn't have a kid then. So, it was I was much more – I wasn't as risk-averse risk as I am now in switching jobs. So, I just completely left my job at Gadgetel, wound up at TechV, started doing video with Randall. And we're talking about doing daily videos. And this is somewhere in like 2008 or so. So, internet speeds are not exactly great. Everything was a one-man operation at the time. So in my my part, my house, that is, I had my prompter set up. I built my own prompters because everything was much cheaper to build back then versus now. Because as YouTube has grown and everybody can make content, the amount of equipment that's available now for cheap is just mind-blowing. But when I was mm-hmm. doing this in 2008, I had to build something. A $35 prompter was made out of heavy wood and the most expensive parts were the brackets. So I set up my own prompter in my in my office, home office. I would write up my scripts. I'd read to camera. I'd send it. I'd do the editing myself. If I could do it live, we did it live to, well, not live to tape, but live to digital, I guess. And mm-hmm. then we'd publish it. So we'd publish two or three times a day, which was a really unusual pace for the time because usually people are setting up and then you got your script writing, you got your research, you got this, that, and the other thing. And I was pulling out two to three pieces of video content per day. So that's got, that got me to tech V and then Randall wanted to kill the company because it wasn't going anywhere. He said, this is not reaching the level where I want it to reach. And so I'm just going to close the doors. And so I said, Oh crud. Now what do I do? So (laughs) at that point I was like, okay, well, do I want to give law another shot? I'm like, yeah, I'll give law another shot because the market had changed a bit. And I managed to get an interview in Plantation, Florida with the IRS, of all things, because I study tax law. That's true. I passed the bar in New York, and I have a master's in tax law, which is completely relevant to what I do now. Completely relevant. So <laughs> I, I go to this interview, and I bomb the interview uh, flat out. I, to this day, I remember the question I should have answered truthfully. They asked me this question of, what do you do when you go too far in the wrong direction? And I wanted, I should have just told them the truth of like, I don't ever do that. When I start feeling like something's off, I immediately talk to somebody else and I go, hey, does this seem right? Is this the way it's supposed to be going? Because this doesn't seem right. I'm from New York and we have signs for delayed green lights. I don't know if you have that elsewhere in, in this country or anywhere else, because we're so impatient in New York that if the light hasn't changed immediately after the other one has, something's broken, people start going. So we need this sign, delayed green light. So when I in my reality, run into a thing where I think I'm kind of going the wrong way just by a hair. I'll talk to somebody. Either they're above me or they're to my side. I'm like, hey, does this seem right? If I just answered that question truthfully, none of this would have happened. (laughs) So I bombed that interview. I start looking for jobs like crazy. I go through 
six months or seven months of unemployment. This was horrible for me. So I'm just trying to figure out what to do. I start doing my own show again. I'm like, okay, after a while, it's bubbled up in me. Like, you got to do this show called This Old Nerd. It's a video podcast I did. And this is before YouTube is huge. It's it, There's lots of different video streaming sites. There's Blip, there's YouTube, there's Dailymotion, there was Vio, there was Vimeo. And there was, there's obviously some of those are still around. So I started doing this show. And then of course, since I did the show, I ended up getting a job at PC Magazine. Now this job was not video. This was a features writer. And I had to spin my video trajectory to explain to them why I wanted to do this. A hundred days goes by and I quit. So the reason why I quit was I got an offer from Twit in California when I was at CES. I was at CES for something. I forget what. I, forget, I assume it was for Gadgetel or it was for it was for um, TechV or PC Mag. I don't even remember which thing it was at this point. I was somewhere. So it's kind of ambiguous. I get this offer from Twit to be on Tom Merritt's show called Tech News Today, and mm-hmm. I get the offer. And I have to tell this company that I persuaded after weeks and weeks and weeks to hire me to let me go. So I quit within 100 days. The editor-in-chief, you know who you are, uh, didn't talk to me for two weeks after I quit. (laughs) I was still at the company for 17 days. He would not speak to me. And I was assigned absolute garbage pieces. Like I had to write these features about the, the most excellent pets in tech or animals in technology. And I'm like, because Boo was really big at the time. I'm like, this is obviously not to my skill level, but I'm on my way out, so I'm going to make some fun with this. So if you ever look at PC Mag and you see anything written by me about animals and technology, that's why. <laughs> so I get this job at, at Twit, and I have to pick up my life and move. At this point, I have a young son, I have a wife, and we move over to California to a little town called Petaluma in Northern California. And it is a bumpy start. I started working with, with Tom Merritt, Sarah Lane, Jason Howell, Leo Laporte, and a whole bunch of other people. And it was a complete uh, mind bender for me because I used to watch a lot of these people on tech TV and I used to watch Tom all the time on CNET and Mm -hmm. I started working with these guys. So that goes on for a little bit and some unpleasantness happens, which leads me to CNET, which uh, we can get into that at some point. Yeah. uh, So, so backtracking a little bit. So, I I would always run into you at CES. That's that's when we would spend whenever we saw each other in person. Ninety uh, percent of the time that we have spent time together, it was because we were both at CES, uh, and we would go grab a meal or something, or just hang out and like make snarky comments about people in tech and each other. A um, lot of ribbing going on at CES, and I remember distinctly the CES before you got hired on to Twit because I was sitting down with Tom Merritt. Uh, And Tom is brilliant. He's one of the best in the business, just phenomenal hard worker. His work ethic is to a point where I can't even, like when I complain about my workload being too heavy, I sit there and think about what Tom Merritt does on a normal week, not even a heavy week, a normal week. And it just puts me to shame. Tom had, he he was at CNET, left CNET, joined This Week in Tech or Twit, and um, started Tech News Today. And I was chatting with him and he was talking about he needed to find a new co-host. He, I could tell he was feeling out like who I thought might be a good co-host. And I said, well, I'll tell you, the guy I would grab 
I mean, he just started a new job, but I'd grab Ayaz. That's who I'd go for if I needed to have a, a tech co-host. At the time, I didn't need a tech co-host uh, because I still had Chris Paulette. I do not have Chris Paulette anymore. I'm just saying, Ayaz, if you need another gig. Um, <laughs> tech, stuff, tech stuff could always use another co-host. But, uh, but no, I... <laughs> but I told Tom, I said, yeah, I, I would talk. I would definitely, I would chat with IS cause he knows his stuff. He's got a very strong perspective. His, his background in law is very helpful in that regard as well. And, uh, and he agreed. He was like, you know, I was thinking about that, but I was kind of trying to see if anyone else was having the same sort of uh, thought process. And I think shortly thereafter you got approached to move over to twit. So that was another time where I wasn't like, you know, terribly surprised at the thing that happened. I was very pleased to see it come through. And obviously, uh, you know, moving all the way across country, there's always the, 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 just the, the stress of moving all the culture change that's there as well. You have the culture of the, the, the new, uh, office, <laughs> which is a very different thing in, uh, Leo Laporte's world. And so how, how do you remember how long you were at twit? I was at twit for almost three years. Uh, it was about two years and like, I want to say eight or nine months, but that place was, it, it was something magical over there because we got to do some really fun stuff. It was very experimental. We were live all the time. So that I thought was really important when it came to getting to know people. Cause it's one thing when you're talking on a podcast and you're explaining how a patent troll is doing something or this technology is going to change the world or this is complete garbage, but people don't get to really know who you are. And in these live streams where we'd just be shooting the breeze or post-show, pre-show stuff, the audience really got to know us and I get to know the audience. So like, I don't think I'm the audience anymore. Like they're my friends. I still talk to a lot of these people today online and I forget that I knew them from the chat room. That's also how I, how I knew people at CNET. Like I mm-hmm. flat out, I was in the chat room all the time. It's how Tom knew who I was in the first place because when I was editing whatever I was doing, I would have CNET videos up live and I would just be in the chat room like, oh, that's not right. Here's what's going on. And that's actually partly what got me noticed was that I was giving corrections for the for the podcast Buzz Out Loud as it was going on, heavily researched. And if I was wrong, I would own up to it, but it didn't happen a lot. And he's oddly enough, that paralleled something he did, how he got his job at Tech TV was that he was frequently in the forums of tech TV. And when something would go wrong, he'd write something about it. And he got noticed by Leo Laporte. So he ended up at tech TV. So this is very uh, similar, these these two career paths of how that happened. So I completely lost track of what I'm talking about other than I used to work for Tom and that was really fun. Yeah. Uh, no, and I love, I love pod. I haven't been on a show with Tom in years now. I haven't chatted with him in years. We kind of, kind of lost touch, but uh, anytime I got a chance to do that, it was always a great joy, mostly because I mean, Tom would do so much of that work too, right? Like he would do so much of the initial research that uh, you could go ahead and try and do some research on your own, but he covered those bases so thoroughly that it was more like, well, what do you think about this? And like, well, Tom's dri- in the driver's seat. I just have to sit in the passengers and like point out stuff occasionally. Uh, so it's fantastic. Well, so you're at, you're over at Twit. How did the transition from, uh, without having to get into messy details, <laughs> how did, how did the transition away from twit? How, what happened next? Uh, well, there was, there was a big pivot point where Tom was going to move to LA. The, the company was in NorCal and he was going to move to SoCal. And this became what was thought to be untenable. 
which is kind of hilarious if you think about it because he's remote and remote stuff can't work with hosts. You can't possibly do a show remotely with people. And so Tom was not renewed. His, his contract was not renewed. And I was passed over for a position that, and I'm going to, this is like the first time I'm saying this. I was passed over for a position that I was told I would get. I was told, yeah, you'd get this should, should this happen. And completely got blindsided. And I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm going to go. So I started pursuing CNET. Now CNET, I had been applying to since probably about 2002. I mean, since mm-hmm. it was a thing, I was like, I, I love CNET. It's got the, the coolest tech reviewers. I always wanted to know what they think and I want to know what's going on. And I applied there. Now, thankfully, I had a lot of people. On the, I'd grown a lot of networking at this point and Tom Merritt was backing me up and people at CNET knew me from the chat room. Uh, Lindsay Turrentine knew who I was because she would be in the podcast and she was a VP at this point. Or No, she was the EIC of CNET. So people knew who I was when I applied for this job. But this job was not in video. This was front door editor. And that what that means is when you go to CNET.com, there is there are stories up there. And that's not mm-hmm. generated by algorithm. That is somebody programming it. You'd program the door. That's what they would call it. And so I'm like, okay. I will go to CNET because it will be different. And I will say CNET is incredibly professional. Read into that as you as you would like. And it is a fantastic place to work. But within about six or seven months, I was kind of losing my mind not doing any video. And so I told my bosses this. I'm like, hey, I want to start doing some videos. And they said, sure. We, we, what, we were really wondering what took you so long in the first place. Because we thought within three months, you'd say something. You got six months through. I think I lost that bet is what my boss said. And I was like, okay, that's great. I'm really glad that you guys were willing and you were you knew I was going to switch over. So I was offered the top five gig, which was pretty awesome because Tom used to do it and Donald Bell did it. And I used to sit next to Donald Bell and we would work on scripts. Like essentially, he would say, you got any ideas for top five? I'm like, yeah, give me a second. I'd throw some stupid ideas at him and he'd make some great video with it. So that was fun. And I even the show's kind of been on a on a hiatus, mostly because of my own laziness and the pandemic and everything. But I started getting to the video side that way at CNET. Then I kept pushing to be on the video team. They split my job in half. They go, okay, so you'll be half on edit, half on video. And then I concocted a plan where I could fully move over to video because I trained my successor. I go, hey, would you mind doing this job? And she's like, yeah, I would love to do this job. I want this job. What took you so long? So she starts working on this this side and the company goes to me, hey, you know, we don't know if we can take you off the door because, you know, it, it, it's it's a hard job and we don't know if we could train somebody. I go, do you know I've not been doing the door for the past two weeks and this other person's been doing it? How's everything going? And they're like, oh, it's going great. I go, well, why don't you put the job, give Caitlin that job, give me the video team and they put me on the video team. So I've been on the video team now for like five, six years. I've been at the company for almost eight years uh, at CNET. I've We've had a lot of different approaches when it comes to video. We need shows. We don't need shows. We need faces. We don't need faces. We just need voices. We need this. And so there's all of this attempt to respond to the market at CNET that is interesting because one of the weird things about CNET is that there isn't a lot of other places to go up. CNET is like at the top. And I'm not saying Mm -hmm. this because I work there. I'm not saying this because uh, I'm trying to say, oh yeah, well, I I have no career ambitions or anything like that. It's more that this company gets tons and tons of views on every single piece of content we do, video or audio or written, because it really has been around for over 20 years. The biggest issues it has is like, well, that's an old person's brand. CNET is old. It's old. It's like, 
Yeah, it is old because it's been around for a really long time, but it's it's got some great people there. So being on the video team has been just excellent. I'd say a good 95% of the time, excellent. But like everybody's jobs, there's that 5% where you're like, do I really have to cover best air purifiers today? Yeah. <laughs> okay. I'm going to make the best video for this though. I'm telling you what, I'm going to have fun with it. My script's going to be, be full of jokes and it doesn't make any sense, but I'm telling you, I'm going to do it. And there is a video, by the way, where I do best air purifiers and it's a hoot. Well, I, as if you ever want to know how gooseneck trailer hitches work, I got a how stuff works article I can point you toward. Uh, so <laughs> I, I am, I am more than familiar with that as well. We're going to take a quick break with our conversation with Iaz, and we'll be right back. So can you talk a little bit about like, what, what is your job? Like we were talking before we started recording that job titles can get kind of fuzzy and vague in our field. Like there, there's a point where, you can have two people who have on paper the same job title. And then when they talk about what their job is, you realize, wow, there's not a whole lot of common ground there. There can be vastly different experiences and job accountabilities and that sort of thing. So kind of, kind of walk through what it is uh, that you do typically uh, uh, during a week at CNET. Well, my main thing is to make videos and that sounds pretty simple, but it's not, you got to think of topics that will resonate with the audience and if you're pitching something that's going to go to YouTube, it's got to fit within the YouTube channel. And that's got its own strategy. If you're pitching something for CNET.com, that's got a different strategy because you can be a little bit more wide. YouTube has this, they have a method of recommending stuff, the algorithms. They, you've probably seen videos but like, the algorithm moved us or whatever. That's a big key. So in, my, in, in the course of the week, technically I'm a senior video producer, which is a weird title because I don't produce other people's content. Not yet. This is something I, I've been thinking about for the long term, but the title doesn't really match what I do. I'm an on-air talent. I pitch my own videos. I go, this is what I want to do. And here's the timeline where I can get it done. If it's a new story, I can do that usually within a day. I was tasked with a Richard Branson story. I don't know when this is going to air, but at the time, Richard Branson, at the time of recording of this, Richard Branson is trying to get in the space before Jeff Bezos to be the first billionaire in space. And I'm doing, I'm researching this to make sure I can have a well-told story of why this is happening. So I do like the vast majority of my own research. It's rare that I'm handed research from somebody else. I'm not a talking head. I am not handed a script from somebody who just says, here, read this. I write my own scripts. I, at this point, since it's in the pandemic, I run my own camera. I run my own prompter. I run the, the lights. I have everything set for myself and I then upload it to an editor. So I get that out, review the video, see if everything matches, and then we'll publish it. I also write the headlines and the descriptions. Those can be tweaked based on search engine optimization, and those things can change, but I've, I've, I have a pretty heavy hand when it comes to this because I do not like when titles change, which wholly change the meaning of the video, or they don't, they don't really mesh with the video. So I really keep an eye on that kind of stuff because I don't want to mislead the viewers. If you're watching one of my videos, my big key is I want you to walk away smarter. I want you to have clicked for a reason. I hope you get the answer right away. Uh, I will say that one of my favorite things, which wasn't one of my favorite things at the beginning, was reading through YouTube comments, which on a good day can be pretty bad. And on, mm -hmm. a, on a great day is not so bad. So <laughs> it's, 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 there's really not a great range of, of things there. But I was really reading 
all of these comments with something Tom Merritt told me a long time ago. It's like, just look for, look for a kernel of actual, uh, something you can improve on. If there's something there, then work with it. If there isn't, then you can just throw that comment aside. So one of the things that I've done differently in my videos is that within the first like eight seconds of the video, I'll tell you the answer to something. If it's like, you know, like what's the best, what's the best phone of the year? It's like, I'll tell you in the first four seconds, like the iPhone is the best phone in the year. I'm going to explain why. Like, I don't make you wait. I don't want to waste the viewer's time. So my actual job is making these videos happen, make sure the content fits the brand, fits the channel, helps us continue working with the YouTube algorithm where our stuff kind of makes sense. So that's that's kind of what I do. That's about like 80% of what I do. Yeah, it's interesting that you bring up the algorithm because that's uh, that's it's just like SEO or search engine optimization in that it shows how beholden content creators are to the platforms to which we publish, right? Mm-hmm. This is why uh, Bernie Burns, who was a, a co-founder of Rooster Teeth, used to say that there was no substitute for having your own platform because at least then you know the rules aren't going to change arbitrarily and force you to completely change your strategy in order to remain competitive. Whereas when you're publishing on a different platform like YouTube, if there's a change in the algorithm, suddenly what was working great yesterday isn't trending at all today. It's not even not even a blip. And, uh, and that's something I think that is applicable to just about everyone who's listening, whoever wants to make any kind of content. I mean, if you're trying to make anything where you're putting it out in a saturated market, you knowing about these algorithms and, and at least kind of having an understanding of how they work is absolutely instrumental in getting uh, a foothold in those areas. Same thing with podcasts, like all the different podcatching uh, services out there have their own method for identifying and promoting material. Often it'll promote whatever is proprietary first. So, so if it's a, if it's stitcher, then it might be stitcher exclusives, get, get first priority. But, uh, you know, knowing that is helpful just because I think it helps you set expectations. It also helps you reconcile the fact if it takes a while to, to take off, it may not be that, you know, you're not doing a good enough job or your content isn't interesting. It may literally be people just haven't found a way to find you yet. Uh, so this is a thing that big companies struggle with too. CNET being one of them. I mean, how stuff works when we were part of discovery, this was a big deal too. We were always really focused on search engine optimization. We saw a lot of traffic coming in from Google searches for a lot of our articles. And whenever that algorithm would change, it would drastically change that, which then changes revenue models. It just has this cascading effect through the entire business. So having that kind of uh, approach and knowledge is really important. And having two different strategies for something about how it might perform on CNET versus on YouTube, that's also a big deal. And you you touched on this a little bit, but can you talk about... uh, you know, I, not that I want to go back and think about 2020 too much, but once the pandemic hit, once the once things started going into lockdown, and once people started to try and look at how to pivot to maintain operations in this, you know, now pandemic world, uh, how did that unfold for you guys? When did when did like do you remember when the CNET offices essentially shut down? Yeah, so it was around March, and I believe. There was one confirmed case at one of the CBS buildings at the time. I believe it was maybe at the broadcast center on 57th. So not in our office on 28th, 
And based on that and all the news coming in, they said, oh, why don't, we're going we're gonna to try something. We're going to give you Friday. You can work from home, and then we'll let you know if you're coming back. We'll probably come back in two weeks, which turned <laughs> into, a, into forever. So they, they told us then that, okay, we're going to work from home. And so uh, I was in a panic in general because I am in a small New York apartment. I got this apartment because I liked the outside, which – doesn't, didn't exist. Essentially, I couldn't use it anymore. And when it came to shooting and stuff, I had to become very creative as to how to shoot in this space. Mm-hmm. So I know that on ours, like we closed down March 13th. And the reason I know that is because I've been back to the office about a dozen times. And there's one desk calendar that ominously just stays at mm-hmm. March 13th, 2020, uh, perpetually. Uh, Friday the 13th. What a day. Uh, so yeah, like it's interesting because I don't do video obviously, which makes it way easier for me, right? I'm only doing audio. I just have to make sure that I'm not getting too much bleed over from outside. I imagine that for you setting this all up in a, in a New York space, which I I think we could charitably call cozy (laughs) was a little presented its own challenges. Like you just mentioned earlier that you run everything, you run the camera, the prompter, all that stuff. Cause you have to, I mean, you can't have people come in during a pandemic to, to help run tech for you. So, uh, can you talk a little bit about sort of the, the setup you use? Like what, what, are, what's the sort of equipment you're using in the space that you have in order to be able to, to do what you do? Yeah. So I used to have camcorders, 1080p camcorders around just for old videos I, I used to do. So I set up one of those things immediately. I found some prompters made by Glide Gear. Because as I was doing research, as I said before, it's so much cheaper now to buy than build because I was just, I was floored by seeing how many options I had. So this company called Glide Gear, they're not paying me. They didn't give me a free one. I found their stuff on Amazon. I thought it was really cool. It seemed really simple. I bought a Glide Gear teleprompter. You got to provide your own screen. I had experience doing that with TechV, so I knew exactly what I needed to do. I had presentation prompter as my teleprompter software, which feeds another monitor, which works pretty well because that is because it's also a monitor. I can, when I have to do any group video calls for like live streaming, I can put that right to camera. So I'm not looking down. I'm not looking to this side when it comes to that live streaming kind of thing. Generally, I don't use it for anything but those two things. So I got that set up pretty well. Then it came to lights. Now, back in the early days, I was using halogens because they were the cheapest, but they were super hot and you would die with those. So thankfully, because again, things have changed, I got to get some LED lights and they were really good. Newer makes a whole bunch of really good low cost uh, devices. And so I got a bunch of their LED lights. I had set up my, there's only two point lighting. I know I'm supposed to be doing three point lighting. I'm supposed to be able to have a hair light. I couldn't do that just because I needed to find a space. Now the space to shoot in my apartment we have a loft that runs a good portion of the apartment and it's about at highest 52 inches tall, which is shorter than I am, which is a a little annoying. So I had to figure out how to make this space work on camera. So I created one set and I had this really great backdrop, but the problem is it was all bricks and the bricks are great, except my skin tone and the bricks were kind of washing out and that was kind of a problem. So then I created a second studio and that, had a lot of work. So a lot of this was 
I wouldn't say Tetrisy because it was more like one of those puzzle games where you have it's a little piece of plastic and you have the numbers in them. You got to arrange them properly. Mm-hmm. But to move one thing, you got to move like three things. That's exactly what it took to make any space work in this in this loft. So I had to come to terms with whether or not I was keeping things. I was throwing things out regularly. Could I find a camera that fits? How am I going to make this work? Because to my original studio had a floor seat. I got a little video game seat that I could sit on because there was no way I could fit a chair in here. Any proper chair, I'd be bonking my head. So I measured everything out. When I built the second setup, the chair I found was something for changing brakes. It's 18 inches tall. It's got big wheels. You can move around on it. Is it super comfortable? No, but at least I look seated because I am <laughs> seated. Uh, I, I knew about backdrops, so I got myself a, after doing a lot of research, I got myself a white brick background, which apparently people thought was was real, which is great because it's not. I had a steamer, so I steamed the heck out of it. There's no, there's no wrinkles and staples are all where the fake mortar would be. So I had to do a lot of that. And that was in a super hot room. I'm on my back and I'm trying to, staple these things. I'm sweating everywhere. Staples are falling when they hit something hard. Not fun. So I did all this building up stuff, building it out, got a desk that sort of fits. But the thing about the desk, there's always something weird about this space that when I put my arms on it, it looks like my arms are huge because they're closer to camera because the height is wrong mm-hmm. because none of the heights are standard in this. You can't sit at an 18 inch high seat at a standard desk. So a lot of this has been trial and error, trying to figure out what fits on camera, obviously making things look neat on camera. Everything beyond the camera is a mess. Like this is like where my luggage is for trips, which I don't take anymore. This is where <laughs> my where my books are. This is where like, like all, where the storage for the apartment is, winter clothes. Like that's where they, they live up here, but they have to be off camera. So all of that was the long-winded answer of how I set this thing up. If there's the camera and there's the prompter and there's a desk and uh, remote remotes were really important to me on this. I had on my Canon camera, it was all remote controlled. So I didn't have to keep you know going behind it. And as the ceiling is low here, w- one of the biggest issues is being able to see the top of a camera because the camera had to be really close to the ceiling. So mm. I can't see the buttons. I can't do anything. So the remotes are really, really, really important to me. So I did everything on remote. The lights are on a remote. The cameras on a remote. The power to all these sections are on remotes. I can tell Google to turn them on and off just because I know when I climb down that ladder, if I forgot something, I'm going to be furious. I got to climb up the ladder again and then squirrel around, press buttons. I'm like, I'm not doing that. So Mm -hmm. a lot of investment in smart outlets as well. So that was a lot of planning, a lot of thinking. And I'm down to one studio space and I kind of like it. It works pretty well. And there, I kind of want to tear it all down again because it's not working exactly the way I want it, but I know that's going to be uh, for the future. Well, was there like a long interruption between when you were producing videos in studio to when you were doing it at home or was it pretty quick? Were you able to turn it around fairly quickly? I think I had my first video back up and running within about a week. So wow. I had I had the prompter and everything. I had ordered this stuff when I, when I heard the rumor we were leaving, I ordered stuff like on a Wednesday. And then when Friday showed them like, oh yeah, you're going to spend Friday at home, all my stuff showed up. I'm like, oh, that's cool. And then when I find out we're not going back, by Wednesday, I had everything running again. And I figured out the shot, figured out the composition of everything. Uh, I had to buy something from the hardware store across the street because I couldn't get something in time. So I paid a lot of money 
for this really cheap LED thing, which I th- I know I could have got on Amazon for like half the price, but I needed it now. So I shot mm-hmm. with that, got the videos out. And that was a huge learning curve too, of like, what videos do people want to see? How do people, how, like, do they want to be distracted? Do they want to be informed about this? Do they want to think about fun things you can do at home? Or do you want to think about, hey, look, this TV is really cool. Let's just talk about tech like nothing has changed. That was an adjustment period. That's really interesting. Yeah, I didn't even think about that. But uh, I mean, I I guess technically I did sort of the same thing, except of course I did it in podcasting. So for me, the the really difficult transition was I had to plug a USB microphone into this computer. And then uh, I already had the the mic stand because we used to record podcasts about pretense at this very same space where I'm at right now. So, so it really wasn't that difficult. In other words, what I'm saying is my experience was vastly easier than yours, except that it does come down to like, how do you determine what, what content to create? Right. Uh, And in my case, um, my listeners are great. They typically reach out to me on Twitter and uh, I don't, I didn't get a lot of messaging about, Hey, can you kind of shy away from stuff that's more COVID related or, Hey, can you really focus on COVID? So I just kept going as is, which, uh, I mean, if you look through the history of tech stuff, it's, that's pretty much the entire Jonathan just does what he wants to do is what that really comes down to over the last say five years or so. Um, but I'm so impressed that there was essentially one week of adjustment before things were coming out again, because it's so much more involved doing video than doing audio. And I, you know, I guess one benefit is that you and I both typically do a lot of solo host work, which means that we're not dependent upon anyone else's schedule. Uh, if there's a technical issue, usually it's, it's easier to track down what the problem is and solve it. Uh, obviously, when you have multiple people, especially when you're all doing it remotely, you've increased the likelihood of technical problems. And then you have to figure out, well, where is the problem originating from? How can we identify what it is and how do we fix it? Ayaz and I have a little bit more to talk about, but before we get to that, let's take another quick break. I thought maybe we'd end this out by talking a little bit about some of your favorite little memories related to stuff you've done with tech, whether it was with CNET or Twit or whatever it may be. Like, are there any moments that kind of stick out either as being just like, ah, I'm really proud of how that turned out, or this ended up being really funny, or let me tell you about the time I completely beefed it on camera or whatever. Well, I, the first thing that comes to mind was I was giving a tour. Now, if you go to CNET, uh, their booth in, at CES, the company has tours for really big, fancy bigwigs. And it was my first year giving tours. And there was a very, very large company that I was leading. And I won't mention that company, but uh, you're going to be able to figure it out. So as, as I'm walking with them, I take this company to LG's booth. And I told them that this is the coolest thing I saw. Now, this company is a very, very large competitor to LG, and they were very mad at me for saying that this was the coolest thing. Now, LG at the time showed a rollable OLED television that fit into a box, essentially, and rolled out and it rolled back in. And I thought this was fascinating, as did many people, because this was one of the coolest things people had seen at CES. Now, CES has gotten to the point where people are like, oh, yawn, yawn, yawn. It's like, no, this was super cool. Mm-hmm. So this company got really, really mad at me, started yelling at me, and I had a little microphone on, on my face, and they can all hear me with little headsets. And so one of the gentlemen decides to yell at me 
into my microphone so everybody can hear. And they're all saying that, you know, you are biased against our company and you don't give us good reviews and this, that, and the other thing, which is the furthest thing from the truth because this company makes great products. I'll say it right now. Again, good luck finding out who the competitor to LG is. A competitor (laughs) to LG that just viciously doesn't like LG. So uh, that part was amazing because I got yelled at so much and I was so disliked I didn't have to give a tour again. And people were asking me, how do you get out of the tours? I don't want to give the tours. I'm like, this is what I did. I didn't mean (laughs) to do that, but they got really, really mad because I was telling the truth. I said, this is the coolest thing and you guys don't have this. So like, it's not my fault. You don't do this. So that was one of the biggest things that I remember. Uh, I will say one of my favorite memories as well was being at the CNET stage and sitting at the desk and ready to, you know, there's prompters going and there's people there. And I remember back when, I think it was you, me, Derek, a whole bunch of people were just kind of sitting there in the audience of CNET and just watching people like, okay, we're just sitting there and watching like, you know, we a little wave to camera and there's Fatty Mo Kid. We're all hanging out. And then I'm now on the stage. Like I used to be the guy in the audience. Now I'm the guy on the stage. And that was really cool. Cause like, they're doing my makeup. I'm talking like stage makeup. So there's like this cake stuff on me, which I don't wear normally. So it's like, okay, this looks really good. I'm doing all this stuff. I'm reading the prompter. I'm just really easy chatting with everybody. It was super smooth. It got, uh, I also, there was a point where I realized it became very normal for somebody to be jamming something in my ear. Mm-hmm. My friend, Brian Van Gelder, he's the, uh, he was like the stage tech. And so he'd be putting an IFB in my ear or taping something to my back. And there's one point where I'm like, when did this become normal? Cause this is really weird. So I take mm-hmm. a photo a selfie, it's me like kind of smiling. He's just weirded out. Like, why are you taking a photo of me jamming something in your ear? It's because like, yeah, this is normal for me because as much as I've been doing this now for almost 15 years, maybe more, it is still really cool to have these moments where I get to talk to people and tell people, hey, this is some really cool technology stuff that you should really check out. Or like, you know, this sounds like a great idea, but it's not. So being able to like share the information that I have access to is really, really fun. So all of that, anytime I do a video, like I said, I try to make sure the audience walks away smarter. Like I really love doing that stuff. But those two moments for CES anyway, they stand out a lot because again, I really ticked off that company <laughs> and and there was people jamming stuff in my ears. Those are like yeah. just two of them, but there's, there's, there's a lot more, but that, those are the two that popped out of my head the fastest. So, so at CES, uh, typically CNET's booth, I believe is outside of the upper floor of South Hall. If I'm yes. not mistaken, it was there um, until uh, I think two years ago, we switched to West as our main one because oh, okay. the, we used to back. If you guys don't know, there used to be a competing show. There was a consumer electronics show and then the AVN show, which is an adult video mm-hmm. show. And I'm not making that up. And so you had this very strange mix of people that you had tech nerds and porn stars. And, and they were and they all, would, they would often have uh, for AVN, they would often have, a special where if you had a membership to CES, you would get a, like a complimentary one for the AVN one. So I know a lot of people who would do both. Uh, I, I never did. I was, I felt like it was just, there would just be a bald man blushing so hard he would pass out. That's all it would be. (laughs) Well, since they used to occupy the Sands West and when they Mm -hmm. left several years ago, CES expanded and West became this kind of wild, no, no, no pun intended, wild West. It was really all these weird little gadgets, little companies, because the main show was in the Las Vegas convention center. So you had your big name companies 
that aren't there anymore. Microsoft used to be there. Uh, there would be the giant Xbox thing. I think Hisense replaced them. There's TCL. There's Samsung. There's LG. There's you know, Panasonic. Everybody's Sony. over in Sony. They're all in 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 Las Vegas Convention Center. But West started getting all these weirder and little things that were really fun to cover. Mm -hmm. uh, gadgets, more oddities, and so that grew and grew as as the space was open. And so we moved our stage from south to west. I believe it was two years ago, and it was. Really, really fun. I got to be an anchor over there for a while, which was just super fun. That's that's so cool. Like I haven't I, I haven't been to a CES since they relocated the stage because I, I do remember going and seeing your image on one of those enormous screens, right? Like like right there at the booth. Like that was to me, I was like, wow, Ayaz has made it, man. His his face is like three stories tall. That's amazing. And, um, and I always thought that that was just uh, like, and I knew you were going to be super busy. So I was like, well, I don't want to, I have such a loose schedule whenever I'm at CES that I can easily take up someone else's entire time if they let me. So I didn't want to do that while you were uh, very busy working. I always felt the same way when, you know, we were just hanging out at the CNET booth before you worked there when we would just, you know, like you mentioned, Oh, I also want to say something else in case my listeners picked up on it. I has mentioned our friend fat emo kid. That is his handle. <laughs> yeah, so don't, yeah. Don't think that he's saying there was a fat emo kid sitting next to us. It's Eric who goes by fat emo kid, uh, whom we love very much. And, sure. um, and so just wanted to just wanted to point that out as well. Yeah, no, this was this was great. I mean, we've had like some crazy adventures, maybe not crazy. We've had some goofy adventures at CES. Like there was the year where uh, Eric was I think he even registered the domain CES from the back of Jonathan Strickland's head where he yep. was just going to stand behind me with a camera and just follow the back of my head. And it was Jonathan CES. or not. I think that was the other thing. Cause we were taking photos of people of anybody who was bald. <laughs> there was that, there was, I believe carpets of CES was one of them. I don't know if that was ours or somebody else's. There was the time where we wound up in the, we went through the employee's entrance of a casino because we just couldn't get across. Cause you know, if you're on this strip, it looks like everything's connected and it's not. So it's super difficult to get across. Yeah. So to be fair, we asked an employee about how to get in and the employee just pointed at the side door, which was an employee's only entrance. So and the first, in. the first stop as we walked in was the security desk. <laughs> yeah. That, and that was not super, but they were nice to us. So it wasn't like those, wasn't like those movies were like, Oh, you're going to break your, your thumbs. It's like, go out that way. Yeah. And you can go where you need to go. So, oh, thanks. That was really nice. Yeah. Of you. yeah they, they clearly, they knew that we were clueless and idiotic. So they were very kind to us. These were great moments. And that LG television you were mentioning, that was one of those things that I thought was fascinating when I first saw the tech. I mean, we had been promised OLED screens for a few years at that point, but most of the OLED screens we saw were like six inches in size. And like, you, you could see where they would show off how it could mm -hmm. bend and everything. But there, there was no real practical way of cre manufacturing them at a scale that would be, that would make any sense, right? Like it would just be astronomically expensive. That LG TV was astronomically expensive, but but at least it was no longer in the, you know, half a million range. I think it was somewhere around a hundred thousand dollars, if I recall correctly. But uh, still, a little outside my own price range for entertainment centers. But well. My question to you then, Ayaz, is uh, if you could be on an episode of Tech Stuff and cover any one topic, what would it be? Because I'll invite you back. Oh, that's not fair. Because I would pick a topic that I don't know anything about. 
Like if I, if I could fun. do anything, that means yeah. I knew, I knew about it versus like, what could I actually be prepared for? Uh, uh, oh man. I think, uh, I don't want to say 5g cause I think you're right. You've done probably a thousand of those things. So I'm also, I'm also the host of the restless ones, a, a show, uh, branded by T-Mobile about 5g technologies. But if you want to talk about 5g, I can well, chat about it for ages. It's more that there's so much, there's so many nuances to it that mm-hmm. even to this, to this day, it's still kind of a mess. Such that like, does your phone do 5g? Does yeah. it have, can it handle sub six in this and millimeter wave? It's like, what does that mean? Because nobody yes. thinks about that when they think about 4g, they're like my phone does this because it has 15 radios. You don't think about it. So mm. 5g has got the same thing, but it's not something that's really talked about in the ads for these companies, because honestly it can be, it can just glaze your eyes over it. Cause it's like, it's not right. that interesting, but it's super important. Yeah. Uh, so 5g in general to me, has been really interesting, even maybe even home 5G. Like I've been testing a, a T-Mobile. They're not paying me for this, a, t- a T-Mobile gateway, because my wired speeds in my New York City apartment, they're not very fast and I don't have options. And with the advent of 5G speeds, in theory, I should be able to get faster speeds and more competition. That's why mm-hmm. I love 5G in general. Like mm-hmm. any company can be a 5G provider, whether they're reselling somebody else's bandwidth or not, but there's more competition and I'm not locked to a certain provider. So 5G is the first thing I'm thinking of. And then I'd have to think about the second one because maybe, oh, the most boring topic of all, HDCP, my least favorite thing, that stupid handshake <laughs> between, I think it's, it's, what's a, um, it's not, what does the HD stand for? It's not just high definition, is it? Oh, I wouldn't be able to tell you. I just did a full, I just did a full series of tech glossary episodes about acronyms and initialisms. And once I finish that, I erase them from my brain. High bandwidth digital content protection. There you go. This is what's known as the handshake between one HDMI device to another. And that is really, really, really annoying because it breaks stuff all the time. If you do anything like video game capture or like hook up one HDMI cable to an adapter to another HDMI cable to make a longer one that could break. I'd love to talk yeah. about that just because it's so, so dumb. That, mm-hmm. That's what the D should stand for. It's, it's dumb. Stop doing this. <laughs> well, maybe what I'll do is I'll, I'll invite you on for a couple of episodes. We can do one about 5g and talk about like the three broad flavors of 5g and what Delicious. those actually mean. Yes. Uh, and we can talk about, uh, you know, again, like you, you say, there's a lot of misunderstanding largely because the messaging around 5g is complicated, right? It's hard mm-hmm. to get across in a way that's quickly digestible. What 5g is capable of doing. Everyone just thinks of, Oh, it's five. It's like spinal tap. It's five. It's one better than four. And it's more complicated than that. Uh, and then I'll get you on for maybe one where we talk about, Stuff that is supposed to work in tech, but sometimes makes things more difficult than it would have been if you hadn't used that technology at all. Because there are some options there, right? Like there's some things where you can say, here's something that was created to solve a specific problem. And here's how it made that problem worse, perhaps in a totally different way. I think I... I tweeted something similar about Android being like Ralph Wiggum sometimes. Like it thinks it's helping. It's like, I'm going to turn low power battery, low, 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 low power on. It's like, you just turned off all my stuff in the background. I'm not getting notifications for this because you think it makes sense to turn off 
email, put that to deep sleep. It's like, I have to go into the settings and then undo your helpful thing. Yeah, sometimes it, it thinks it's helping, but no. Yeah, no, no, no. no. I, uh, yeah, that'd be I, fun to talk about. I watched your video about the uh, the latest build of Android when it was going into beta testing, and you, you know, it was <laughs> it was the day of, and you uploaded your video, and you was like, "Well, this isn't working yet." Like the idea, like the the color palette that's based yep. off of your your whatever background image you've chosen, that kind of stuff. Uh, I want to let you know I also installed the beta after I watched your video, and now my phone just randomly freezes. Then I have to turn the power button off and the beta then it's supposed to be better. Uh, yeah. but I also would like to say this. My, one of my favorite comments about that video was dude doesn't know Android because it has a built in screen recorder. And to that I replied, it doesn't work in the beta. <laughs> like I kept trying and it kept crashing. So I did yeah. something crazy by downloading a third party one because the first party one was buggy. So if I, I try to record with it, try to make a video for people and it's like, Oh, it keeps breaking. So I really needed to use a third party one. So, uh, I, I know Android a bit, uh, but I also know when stuff doesn't work. Yeah. So, yeah. so that's, that's when I'll have you on. We'll talk about how tech doesn't work occasionally. I as thank you so much for coming on the show and for giving some of your valuable time over to the beloved tech stuff listeners. I'm sure they appreciate it. Where should they go to see your work? Okay, I'm going to be very, very, very self-promotional. Go to twitter.com slash IAZ, I-Y-A-Z. That's me. Not not the that's me part. It's just I-Y-A-Z. Uh, I tweet about my, my day. I tweet about what I'm covering, what videos I'm doing. Occasionally, I'll tell you about stuff that has nothing to do with technology, so be aware of that. If you're interested in barbecue sauce, I might be talking about it there. But also go to youtube.com slash CNET because we're doing some of the best stuff we've ever done, and it's showing up there. We're doing some long form stuff. We're doing some experimental content. I'm really proud of our team and I'm really proud of the stuff we're putting out there. So go to CNET.com or YouTube.com slash CNET and see all the stuff there and follow me on Twitter, please. Excellent. And guys, if you have any suggestions for topics that I should cover in future episodes of Tech Stuff, you can always reach out to me on Twitter. The handle for the show is TechStuffHSW because while I'm no longer part of How Stuff Works, it's always in my heart. They surgically implanted it. And I'll talk to you again really soon. Tech Stuff is an iHeartRadio production. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 